The word of the Lord says this. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from the transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from, the, from many transgressions resulting in in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in the life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Prentice. Good morning, everyone. Glad that you could be with us, especially welcoming uh, college. Who's new back from college? You're back for college. Would you raise your hand? Some of you are. Super. Glad that you're here. Uh, I want to open in a moment here by sharing a story from my own college experience here in Seattle. So let's take a moment and we'll pray together. You guys are, by the way, the... You're either super faithful or you own DVRs or you don't care about football. But for whatever reason, so glad we can share these moments together. Let's pray. Father, we'll pause now. Grateful that you, the Holy Spirit, are our teacher. And we pray, Father, that uh, you'd speak to us now. Thank you that we belong to something uh, that's much larger than any one of us and larger even than our life together. That you have been writing a story through Bethany Community Church for 100 years. And we pray that you would... Now, equip us to be faithful as we live into our identity and uh, pass that identity on to subsequent generations in order that the hope found alone in Christ uh, would continue to breathe new life through this community into our city and our region and our world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. As I just shared, uh, 2016 is our anniversary at Bethany. We're 100 years old, and I don't know if you know how unusual that is, but to frame that a little bit, we got a certificate from the state congratulating us on our 100-year anniversary and telling us that about 3,000 companies incorporated in 1916 in Washington State and about 25 remain from 1916. So we're part of uh, something that has been going on in the city for a long, long time and this year coming, 2016, we'll spend some time together celebrating our 100th year anniversary and talking about what it means to be part of this ongoing story that God has been writing now for, for 10 decades and several generations. That's really remarkable. I'm thrilled to be part of an older community and recognize that we have some roots, some history here in our city and that we are now building for a new generation. So since we're talking about 100 years, I'm gonna share a story from 40 years ago at Bethany 1976, because I was a college student in Seattle in 1976. My dad had died three years earlier in 1973. I was depressed, 
I was confused, I was angry at God, but in the winter of 75, I had this pretty profound encounter with God, uh, committed to making knowing God the chief goal of my life, and as a result, that changed majors. I was studying architecture at the time. I was attending Cal Poly, uh, uh, California uh, State University down in San Luis Obispo on the coast of California. And so I changed majors from architecture to music, changed colleges from Cal Poly to Seattle Pacific, and drove north to Seattle. I'd never been north of Sacramento in my life, and ended up here in Seattle. And then in the fall of 76, I attended Bethany Community Church in the chapel across the street. One of my first Sundays when I was there, I heard a guy speak named Joe Cook, and he'd recently written a book back in 76 entitled Free for the Taking about the grace of God. And I want to tell you, hearing that sermon changed my life and became actually for me a gigantic marking point in my own faith journey. So that I, I go, there was that time before Bethany and there's that time after I started attending Bethany. And the difference was grace. Before Bethany, every Bible teacher I'd ever heard came across as having it all together. Do you understand what I mean by that? I'm up here, you're, and I, well, I am up here, but uh, I'm up here, you're down there. And, here, and this Joe Cook guy, when he spoke, uh, he opens his talk, and he talks about uh, having a nervous breakdown on the mission field and coming home. And then, uh, when, he, when he got home, battling depression. And this blew my mind. I was like this. Wait a minute, this guy's a Christ follower, loves Jesus, and has struggles. The reason it blew my mind is because I'm a Christ follower, 1976, and I love Jesus, and I'm depressed, and I'm mad at God. And I recognize in his story, hope. Ah, God can use me even though I have struggles, right? Before that day, in my paradigm, you need to be holy enough, good enough, disciplined enough, strong enough, generous enough if you're going to enjoy the blessings of God. Only kind of the elite soldiers really receive gifts from God. And then this guy, Joe Cook, explains from the Bible that God's grace and love are not rewards doled out for good behavior. God's grace and love are the starting point of the faith life. God's not mad at anyone. And so uh, before, the primary nature of the Christian life had been for me performing. From that day on, the primary posture of the Christian life became for me receiving. In other words, here I am, I'm receiving all that God is. And that is the, the, the gospel of grace. And that's the starting point of the Christian life. And it's all wrapped up in this notion, mercy triumphs over judgment. And I want to tell you, when I heard Joe Cook, fall 1976, I left that day I mean, I left changed, transformed, uh, because there were seeds planted in my heart that would ultimately redirect my entire life, my vocation, my, 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 the context of my calling, and ultimately leading me back here to Bethany to be the, the senior pastor back in 1995. So Bethany was a place of repentance for me, repenting from performing for God, learning to receive from God, allowing God's life to flow through me, and this is why I love Bethany. It's why I'm here. And as we've grown now as a church, many of you know, to six locations, when we think about the future, we're asking the question, how do we grow and, and, and start new locations and at the same time 
preserve what holds us together as a community, if that makes sense. And so we want to preserve the things that unite us while giving people freedom to express the life of Christ uniquely in each location. And so we're doing this series entitled Better Body, talking about church life, because everybody has DNA. And so we're asking the question here in the next six or seven weeks, what are some of the fundamental DNA elements of Bethany? What makes Bethany Community Church a unique expression of the life of Christ? What elements do we intend to keep at the center of our life together for the next 100 years? We don't, we don't spend a lot of time here arguing about when the rapture is going to occur or what, you know, what gifts are permanent and what gifts you know, faded away when the Bible came. There's, there's a lot of things that we don't center on. What do we center on? What we're about? What are we about? And I would argue here this morning, or declare actually, that I think that historically the most important marker that makes Bethany distinct, that we work hard to preserve and pass on to subsequent generations, is this notion of God's grace. In other words, above everything else, my hope is 100 years from now, Bethany is still known as a place of grace because it was a place of grace for me in 1976. It was a place of grace for others in the 60s, the 50s, even the 40s. Bethany's been a place of grace. So what does that mean is what we're looking at this morning. And there are three fundamental truths regarding the grace of God that I want to help you embrace this morning. And it begins with a fundamental question. And here's the fundamental question. And this is, the, this is the big question of the universe, actually. Is God for us? Is God for us? And uh, a corollary question, is God for the world or against us? And so how you answer that question fundamentally determines how you live your life. Because all the religious fear that makes us feel we've not done enough, not prayed enough, not holy enough, not devoted enough, not disciplined enough, all of that stems from the notion that fundamentally that we believe that there's a huge chasm between us and God. And you've heard this, right? You're here, God's here, and here's the problem, you're sin. And, and so, like, I, you've got to get to God somehow because God's, like, you've offended God in some way, and how are we going to solve this problem? God's mad, right? Now, I get it. I understand where that comes from scripturally, but I'm going to show you a nuanced view of that that's hugely significant. But if I believe that way, then I'm afraid of God's rejection, right? And if I'm afraid of God's rejection, ultimately, I'm also afraid of rejection from uh, the people of God, other Christians. And if I'm afraid that if you really knew me, you'd reject me, then I'm at grave risk of presenting myself as being holier than I actually am. True? And this often happens in faith communities, right? We gather and we say this, oh yeah, we're all sinners saved by grace. And yet when we share, when we share stories with each other, our stories are presented in such a way as to indicate that maybe I had a problem once in the great past, but now I'm fine, right? I, and even, even the great songs that are true in a nuanced way misrepresent this, this notion and create a sense that we're more than we are. I once was blind, but now I what? See. Really? Do, do we see everything? I don't. I once was enslaved, but now I'm free. As if it's either or. As if I've crossed the chasm. And here's the, here's the problem with that paradigm. I mean, I grew up with that paradigm. And I, and I gathered in communities 
Very similar to this one, where we would sing, bring our big, big, uh, big Bibles, quote scripture, study scripture, pray, but everyone came across as already being there. And I was like this, if everyone's there, I'm an outsider. And I don't know how many of you felt this, but I felt this in a huge way all through junior high, high school, and the beginning of college. Uh, yes, I'm among the people of God, but I don't belong. Outsider in my youth group, outsider in my college group, outsider in the community of faith. Why? Because everybody's so good. They all see. <laughs> They've all arrived. But they haven't. It's hypocrisy and self-righteousness. And what it does is this performance mentality has the effect of driving our sin and doubt underground, right? Because we don't want to share our failures because we're afraid of being judged. And that makes authentic confession rare, which is ironic because confession is the precondition for receiving all the healing power of God, but we'll get to that in a moment. So my lack of authentic confession means that I'm living with a huge disconnect between what I declare and what I experience. On the one hand, I say, God is love, I'm forgiven, I'm free. On the other hand, behind the curtain, away from the meeting, away from the singing, when I'm in bed alone at night and it's only me and God and my thoughts, I know that I know I'm not there yet. Greed, fear, lust, anger, self-doubt, complacency, cynicism. So it's a problem. And, and, and in that sense, when I sing that, that I'm victorious, but I feel like a failure, faith life becomes irrelevant. And that's exactly how I felt the fall in 1976 when someone said to me on Fifth Hill at Seattle Pacific University, dude, go check out Bethany Community Church. And I went and I heard Joe Cook and it changed my life. Because the message of grace permeated Bethany Community Church for me as a college student and permeates, permeates Bethany now, I hope. Because here's the deal. The biggest lie in the universe is this. God's angry at humanity. It's the biggest lie in the universe. God's not mad at humanity. And let me tell you why I say that. You have to go all the way back to Genesis 3 to understand. But here's the fundamental, here's the fundamental story of the universe is this, right? Adam and Eve sinned. As soon as they sinned, right, their eyes were open. They knew they were naked. What did they do? They, they tried to cover their, their nakedness with the fig leaves. You know the story. If you, if you know the story, you know. And then, significant, Adam hears God's voice and runs. Now, why did he run? Well, you know why. Uh, the great question that gives all of us hope is this. Uh, in Genesis 3, you hear God say, Adam, where are you? You know why I love the question? Because it mean, this is what it means. Adam's running from God, and what's God doing? God's seeking Adam. Adam's, ru Adam's running, God's seeking. That's the story of humanity. Humanity's running, God's seeking. It's in our nature to run. I mean, if you've been here anytime at all, you know I've shared a story from my, my own childhood of breaking the picture glass window in the living room when I was in Little League, waiting for my dad to come and take me to the game. And if you've heard that story, you, you know exactly what happened. As Soon as the window broke, my, my dad walks through the front door 
What did I do immediately? I don't know what you would do, but this is, I mean, it was instinct to me. I ran to my bedroom. I shut the door. I locked the door. You know, my dad comes in, he knocks. Hey, come out. I said, no. I'm not coming out. I know. I know. I'm grounded till I'm 25, right? <laughs> like, it's over. It's over. So, failure on my part. I mean, there's a, like, there are not a lot of rules when I grew up, but this was one rule. Never throw the ball in the house. And I did. And I threw it right into the picture window. $200 window, you know, shattered. And so here's a mini gospel, right? Here's humanity in Byron Richard Dahlstrom running, locking the door, crawling in bed, literally put my pillow over my head. And here's God, the Father. <laughs> Where are you? Get out. And when I finally did come out, yes, there's discipline, but hear me, there's forgiveness. Immediately there's forgiveness. And this is huge, this is significant. Because this is the gospel, right? So when Adam's running, he thinks that God is mad at Adam. Can I just say to you, God's not mad at Adam. I'll, I'll prove it in a minute. God's mad at Satan. How do I know that? Because the judgment meted out on Satan offers uh, no provision for grace or recovery, none. God's mad at sin because sin becomes the disease that is at the root of all disease, all war, all poverty, all oppression, all division, all death. All lust, all fear, it all comes from sin. Sin would corrupt the world and everything in it. God's, God's angry at sin, God's angry at Satan, but angry at humanity? No, it's a lie. Read Colossians 1.21, which tells us that because of our evil behavior, we are enemies of God, and then this is hugely significant, in our minds. We're enemies of God in our minds because of our, because of our evil, evil behavior. In other words, we have a distorted view of God that causes us to run from God. We're on the run because of shame and a desire to avoid a rejection that will never come if we run to God. <laughs> but enemies? No, we're not enemies. And here's how I know we're not enemies. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, hugely significant, already read by Prentice uh, this morning, but it's such an important... Uh, truth, I, I, I'm going to re-articulate it here. My little children, I'm, you know, John is writing, I'm writing these things to you, Christ followers, so that you may not sin. And this is the thing, in the Greek language, this is uh, written in like a uh, third-class condition. In other words, we could translate it this way. Uh, I'm writing th these things to you so that you may not sin, but you will, <laughs> right? So you all will, right? I'm writing to you in order to help you overcome sin, but when you sin, Watch this. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins. What does that even mean, propitiation? Well, this is the thing. Propitiation is a word, it means satisfaction. In other words, there, God had anger, right? God had anger, but the anger was satisfied in the offering of Christ. So Christ is propitiation for our sins, and then this is how I know God's not mad at anyone. This is what it says. God, Christ is the propitiation for our sins, and not our sins only, but listen, the sins of the whole world. In other words, what sin is satisfied by Christ's work on the cross? What sin uh, has been absorbed? What effects of sin have been dealt with by the, by the word of the cross? Every effect of every sin by every sinner for all time. Not only our sins, we who believe, but the sins of, it's in your Bible, the whole world. God's not mad. 
Oh, yeah, but he was mad until the cross. Really? Behold, the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. So that when Adam sinned and ran, God is able in his infinity to apply the work of the cross to running Adam. Why? Because Jesus is slain before the foundation of the earth. We're, I mean, we're limited to, to time and space. We think chronologically God doesn't. So God was, God was never mad at us. Let me read from Cosmos Reborn to rearticulate this. Doesn't sin separate us from God? Oh, yeah, it does. Sin separates you from God, but sin never separated God from you. Uh, this is not just wordplay. This is vital to understanding the heart and nature of the Father. What you believe about the Father will positively or negatively affect every area of your life. We get our grid for this in the book of Isaiah where the prophet writes, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear, but, listen, your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. So understand here, sin has caused separation only in that it has blinded us and deafened us to the sweet truth of who God really is. God is not the deaf one. God is not the blind one. It's our sin that blinds us. Separation is an illusion, a figment of our fallen imagination. We think that we can run and hide from God, but the truth is, Psalm 139, verse 8, where can I go to run from you, God, wherever I go? If I go to the highest mountain, if I go to the depths of the sea, God, you're already there. In fact, even if I ascend into the depths of hell, you, God, are there. So I can run from God, run anywhere, thinking that in your shame, you're running from a God who, when God finally catches up to you, will destroy you. And here's, this is the overwhelming story of the Bible. Go ahead and run, but when you run, know that God will already be there, waiting for you with infinite love and open arms. And that brings us to the fundamental answer for the universe, which is this, God is love and grace. That's who God is. is it, I mean, is God for me? More than for me. God is infinite love and grace. And how do I know this? Two, at least two truths, maybe three that we'll look at here briefly. We see this first in God's seeking of us, right? The entire trajectory of the Old Testament is intended to show us that God is relentlessly in his pursuit of humanity's recovery from the sickness of sin. It's the whole story of the Old Testament. Right from the beginning in the garden, sin, we run, God chases down. And then a great example of the, of the, of the true nature of grace is seen in, like if you read Genesis, starting about chapter 20 and read through the end of Genesis sometime just for fun, I mean, you love, I, I love that section of the Bible, and here's why. There's, n there's no reality t TV show anywhere that holds a candle to the depravity of those 30 chapters of the Bible, right? The Kardashians look like Sunday school teachers <laughs> compared to, like, Jacob's sons, the 12 tribes, right? Uh, it's a disaster. So God had said, though, regarding those 12 boys, hey, you know what? Here's your calling. You are going to show the world the character of God. I mean, I mean, uniquely bless you, so you show the world what God looks like. You know, image bearers. 
By the time you get to Genesis, like chapter 40, how are they doing it image-bearing? Any idea? Well, you know, it all, it's all rooted in, you know, Isaac and Esau and lying and stealing. And, and you know, Jacob then has this disaster of these four wives and, and the kids that are competitive. And they grow up in this environment of unabashed favoritism. And they grow up greedy and they grow up self-righteous. They grow up privileged and it begins to manifest itself. Um, they retaliate for the sexual assault of the one sister in the story uh, by wiping, by slaughtering all the men in an entire village <laughs> through deception, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, we'll marry, you know, we can intermarry, just circumcise everybody. And then, well, the whole village gets circumcised. Uh, I mean, Levi and Simeon go in and they, they kill all the men, they kill everybody and steal all the stuff and steal the women and children. God's, cho you know, chosen people, right? And then, you know, Joseph unabashed favorite, son of Jacob. Uh, and, and so the other brothers hate him. It's in the Bible. They hate him. I, by this all men will know you're my disciples, in that you hate your brother. No. Love. But, they, but they're not loving. They're hating. Right? So they, uh, they have this hatred problem that, that presents itself in that uh, they throw him in a pit and then they end up selling him for a slave. And then Judah, whose idea it was to sell his brother into slavery, Judah, you know, he then sleeps with his, with his daughter-in-law, thinking she's a prostitute, impregnates her. She gives birth to twins. Uh, they go home with this, with this, you know, this multicolored robe of Joseph's. They toss on the table for their dad. Hey, look what, look what we found. You know, full knowing that he's alive. Jacob thinks he's dead. He weeps for days. It's, and the text says, oh, yeah, his brothers, they arose to comfort him, but, but Jacob would not be comforted. Arose to comfort him? Really? You, I'll tell you how you comfort him. You go, hey, Dad, you ready for a big joke? You know, Joseph's alive. Ha, ha, ha. You know, we threw him in the trunk, drove him down to Mexico, sold him. But he's alive. We'll go get him. Sorry. No, you know, total deception. Total self-righteousness, lust, greed, murder, and here's the deal. When they go down into Egypt, which represents the world, who's there? The type of Christ, Joseph, to save them. And not only does he save him, but he saves them and he transforms them so that by the end of the story, you have to read it yourself, by the end of the story, spoiler alert, Judah is willing to lay down his life for the other hated brother. All stay as a slave, let Benjamin go free. Greater love has no man than this, that they lay down his life for his friend. That's Judah at the end of the story. This is God's grace. Hear me, the most important thing. God's grace says this, wherever you go, I am there loving you, but I love you too much to let you stay the same. Because grace not only accepts, grace transforms. And we are interested, many of us in the room, immensely in transforming one another through law. Law doesn't transform. And others of us are inter interested immensely in allowing each other to, to, to bask in grace and remain untransformed. That's not true grace. Grace accepts infinitely and unconditionally, but the power of grace is that it transforms. And, and this is what God does. He seeks us so that he can, in his infinite love, provide a context for our transformation so that we be delivered not only from sin's penalty, but sin's power. 
This is why in Luke 19.10, we read, Jesus says, look, I came to seek and save that which is lost. And lost is the perfect word to describe the human condition because if you read uh, the story of like the 23rd Psalm, we read, the Lord is my shepherd. And, and so Jesus is the one seeking the lost sheep. And you know, do you know the story? There were 99 sheep and, and then, or there were 100 sheep and 99 you know, were with the shepherd, one wandered away. My wife learned this full on September 14, we're in the Alps. We have friends who own a farm. They have sheep. And every September, they bring in the sheep. So they go, the shepherd has to go up into the Alps, find the sheep, bring them home. And it's a, like, it is, yep. That's <laughs> what happened. It's a, remar- it's a remarkable uh, experience for her. She comes home, she, and she's actually written a little book about this, which is really, really cool. Uh, but, he, he, like, so she comes up, she says, you wouldn't believe. First of all, do you know in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. You know that, right? So the shepherd comes, and the sheep are all over the place. There's several shepherds, actually, and a bunch of sheep. But when this particular shepherd says a word, his sheep come. And then this shepherd speaks, and these sheep come. And then this shepherd speaks, and these sheep. So it's amazing. And then, they, and then they, collectively, they drive all the sheep down into a pen. And then Hans, one of the shepherds, he counts his sheep. He goes, oh, one's missing. So you know where this is going, right? Just like the Bible, what does Hans do? He goes back up. Like, I mean, it's 4,000 feet hiking up, 4,000 feet of elevation gain, back into the high country to look for the one lost sheep. And he, here's the good news. He finds the one lost sheep. Here's the bad news. It's dead right? Now, why is it dead, you ask? I'm glad you asked. This is like a kid's story here. This is so amazing. So, uh, in the Alps, you have not only sheep, but you have mountain goats. So, you have the, don't you love this? You have the sheep and the goats, right? And uh, the thing about goats is they, they, can, they go places that if sheep go there, they'll be killed, and so, literally, one sheep wanders off with the goats, right? And so goats, like mountain goats, can, I don't know if you've seen them ever, but they can be on a rock face, and they can handle it. Sheep, if they get up in this high country and steep, they can't get down. And that's what happened to the sheep. He climbed with the goats, but then he couldn't get back down. And when he tried to get down, uh, he, you know, he fell to his death, so, so uh, the, I mean, this is filled with Scripture, right? There's a goat way of living that is attractive, right? So the sheep go to, be, to, to live like the goats. The sheep go to live like the goats. I mean, if you've heard One Republic song, Counting Stars, there's a line in there. Everything that kills me makes me feel alive. How many of you know the song that I'm talking about? Everything, that, this is it. Wasting, t- look, there's a goat way of living, and it makes me feel alive. It's easy, but it kills me. Yeah, uh, totally. Wasting time, easier than purpose. Indulging, easier than denial. Fear, easier than courage. Greed, easier than generosity. Forgiveness, easier than bitterness. Porn, easier than engagement. TV, easier than conversation. Yeah. So we go with the goats. And, and then we find ourselves stuck. The difference between 
the goat story and the gospel is that when we, when, when we want our way, Christ is already there. Always, wherever you go, available for our return. God's always seeking. Psalm 139, where can I go that you're not already there? So as soon as I know my sin, I'm free to return. And we'll, we'll come back to that in the end here. And then we also see uh, that God is love and grace in God's preemptive forgiveness. In other words, uh, a guy spoke to me years ago. I was speaking up in Canada, in eastern Alberta. This guy has me over for lunch. He says, I have a question for you. He says, look, um, do you think that forgiveness is predicated on confession? Right? Does that make sense as a question? Like, in other words... If, if, if you've wronged me, do you need to confess before I forgive? I said, why do you ask? And then this is, he tells me the story. He says, well, there were two, there's two families in our church, and something happened between his children and my children. One of, his, one of his children wronged one of my children, and I've never forgiven him. I said, really? Like, what happened? Well, he tells me the whole story. Never forgiven him. I said, so how does this play out in practice. He says, every Sunday, they go to the same church. Every Sunday, this guy comes to me and he holds out his hand to say hello. And he says, every Sunday, he says, I have to turn away and not speak with him and not shake his hand. Until, because until he confesses, I'm not forgiven. I said, really? So every Sunday, you, you, like, you, won't, talk, you, you won't talk to him? Not until he says he's wrong. How long has this been going on? This is what he says. 24 years. Every Sunday, 24 years. And I'll just tell you, like physiologically, this guy, like he's hunched over. I mean, he was, he's old anyway, but I'm old and I'm not hunched over, right? So, so like he's hunched over and he's, and, and he's bitter. He's bitter. And he won't forgive without confession. He says, what do you think? I said, I think you're wrong entirely. He says, really? You know, 1 John 1, confess your sins. I said, yeah, I get that. But now let's consider another part of the Bible because there is, there is more to the Bible than 1 John 1, right? What about, the, what about this? Here's Jesus, right? A, betrayed by Judas. B, abandoned by his disciples. C, uh, unjustly tried by the Pharisees. D, his hands washed passively uh, by Pilate for political expediency. E, beaten. F, mocked. G, forced to carry his own cross. H, you know, nail across, I <laughs> mocked by the crowd at the foot of the cross. If he's God, let him come down. Prove it. Prove it and we'll believe. Man, are you kidding me? You put yourself in Jesus' shoes in that moment? I'd be like this. You want to see God? I'll show you God. <laughs> Boom! You know, <laughs> vaporize the entire community. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> it's my prerogative. I am God after all. Oh, yeah, except here's Jesus. After all that, what does he say? Do you know it? Yes, you do. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You know what that's called? Preemptive forgiveness. And I said to this guy, that's what you need to do to your friend. Oh, yeah, well, what about, you know, 1 John 1, 9? I said, absolutely. Look, that's about restoration of fellowship. For there to be real fellowship, there has to be, there has to, certainly mutuality, but that's now on him, not you. <laughs> God's not waiting for us to confess because he's mad at us. 
He's waiting for us to confess so that our own mind can be renewed and we can once again rest in the love of his completed work. He, because he's not mad. 1 John 2, 2. Propitiation for the whole world. Uh, you know, so the problem isn't that we're not forgiven and loved. The problem is our refusal to receive forgiveness. And why would any of us in the room ever refuse to receive forgiveness? Here's why. Because we present ourselves as being more than we are. Oh, I'm, you know, we gather in here, and we, we're sinners, but we're sinners generically. Oh, yeah, 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 God saves sinners. And I was a sinner once. Oh, and then we have these testimonies. Oh, back in the day, you know, and then, especially when you're in college and high school, if you're like me, I felt guilty in testimony time because I was like, man, didn't drink, didn't sleep around, you know, swore twice in junior high, you know. Like, I need a story, man. Transformation. So, but it's always like this. That's who I was, but now I'm lily white. And I, I don't mean that, you know, pejoratively, but we, like we present ourselves as more than we are. Who? So what do you need to receive today? Oh, nothing. I mean, a sinner saved by grace. A sinner, really? Like generically or specifically? Because here's how grace applies specifically. Yeah, yeah. Here's, here's my laundry list. Still dealing with. Whatever it is. Lust, greed, fear, shame, bitterness, unreconciled relationship, spiritual blindness, self-righteousness. I mean, we all have stuff, but if my hands are filled with, you know, my performance, I'm not on the ground of grace. The only way I can receive grace is with empty hands. And that's what Joseph Cook taught me in 1976. I'm going to the mission field to do it for God, man. I'm going to knock it out of the park. We're going to save the world. Nervous breakdown. Come on. I thought, you know, I thought if you're just zealous, you try hard enough, work enough, God's going to, you know, use you. No. God's going to break you. So finally, when you have empty hands, with your empty hands, you'll say this, God, I can't take another step. Finally, says Jesus. That's what I've been waiting to hear. You've been knocking yourself out, you know, trying to present yourself as more than you are. Will you relax and just rest in my arms and let me hug you? So that receiving all that I am in terms of grace. Here I am, here I am, God. I, I just, I'm, I'm running into your arms with my lust, with my fear, with my shame, with my greed, with my temper. And here's what we find. God wraps his arms around us. God loves us fully. And it's that love that heals us and then transforms us so that we're freed not only from sin's penalty, but from sin's power. But until I'm willing to name it and run into God's arms, I, my hands are full. Yeah, I'm fine. I got a master's degree. I'm, don't, don't worry about me. I get six figures. I'm doing great. I, CrossFit, man. My pulse is 40. I'm great. I'm fine. Leave me alone. Oh, yeah, yeah. We all, you know... Any of us can shoot the arrow and then paint a target around it. Oh, you make a lot of money. Good. Got a lot of education. Awesome. Your pulse is small. Wonderful. It's not the point. Do we look like Jesus? And here's the, here's the answer. No. Not fully. Because when we're honest, we all are like this. Yeah, there's still something in here. And Satan tries to capitalize on that and define us as that. The good news is we're not, we don't have to be defined by that. I left Bethany that morning 
1976, with a commitment to stop pretending I'm okay. One of the best decisions I ever made. And my prayer is that that would be Bethany for all of us. So what do we need to do if God's a God of grace? Well, two things. I need to receive grace. I need to give grace. One theologian regarding receiving grace says it this way. Uh, In his death, Christ makes humanity's peace with God before humanity has decided for this peace. And quite apart from their decision. God's not mad. (laughs) In believing, humans are only conforming to the decision about them that God has already made. In other words, God calls everyone on the planet his beloved. But if you choose not to be, because you're going to continue to insist on, on living on the ground of performance, you'll miss grace. And then, freely we've received, what? Freely give. The prayer would be that a community like this would be a community of authenticity, where we, we come every Sunday not as people who have it all together, but people who, has, people who are broken, recognizing that as we're, as we're honest with our brokenness, our brokenness becomes a soil in which transformation can occur. And so we can give each other grace. It's free, it's okay if you're dealing with depression. It's okay if you're dealing with lust. It's okay if you're dealing with fear, anxiety. You're still what? Beloved. I hope 100 years from now, somebody's up here preaching, saying this. You know, on our 200th anniversary, what we're praying for is this community will continue to be characterized above everything else by what? The grace of God. Why? Because it's that grace that is the soil of all of our transformation. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can gather here this morning. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for all that you've given us. We pray, we trust, we hope and ask now, Father, that as we respond, you would use our responsive hearts to transform us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. The way we respond this morning is at the bottom of your notes, it says this, God's grace means I'm God's beloved in spite of. And I'd encourage you to have the courage to name an issue that you feel often defines you. Satan tries to define us by our failures. So in spite of lust, I receive my identity as the beloved. In spite of fear, in spite of anxiety, in spite of doubt, I receive my identity as the beloved, receiving God's grace. And second, having received God's grace, I'm free to forgive. And so in Jesus' name, I forgive. And maybe you need to name someone, maybe you, or a parent, or a neighbor, or a roommate, or a spouse. But I forgive in Jesus' name. And then you bring it up here as, a, as an act of prayer. There's an altar. And you leave bathed in grace. This is the most important thing you can do this week is become a person of grace in greater measure so that the light of Christ can shine in you and through you to a lost and hurting world. Let's worship together.